George Frederick, Frederick Handel. Ever hear of him? You almost didn't. In the early 18th century, Handel had gained uh, popularity as an opera composer, but a perfect storm was brewing to end the music. In the first place, Handel had an unpredictable temper, so much so that a lot of musicians just refused to work with him anymore. And then there came an extended illness that took him out of the game for a good long time. And when he tried to return again, uh, some 10 years later, the public had moved on. Nobody was really interested in the music that he was writing anymore. And he was uh, broke, impoverished, depressed to the point of despondency. When out of the blue, in 1741, he was asked to produce a charity work to be performed in Ireland. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Adversity can do some things. So as it can make us bitter people, it can also drive us to the foot of the cross. And that's what it did to Handel. And inspired by his Christian faith, uh, Handel wrote his sacred oratorio, Messiah, with an almost superhuman energy and zeal. And I would say inspired words, but the libretto were inspired words. They were all scripture. And if not for that magnificent work, you would have never heard of George Frederick Handel. He would have disappeared from history. You know, the music uh, in Israel, it had almost disappeared. Because the source that inspired it had taken a 400-year hiatus. And there were some people who just simply forgot the music altogether. They'd moved on. They were doing other things. There were others, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, like the teachers of the law. They remembered the music, but they got the tune almost entirely wrong. But there were some, some who remembered the old music, who still knew it by heart, who still hummed it to themselves. And then one day, there was fresh music, and it began in the form of a prelude. Scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. 
and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Our Father, as we contemplate these words, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they lift us up to you, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the source of the music, God's revelation, it had stopped for 400 years, a 400-year hiatus. 
And most had forgotten the music or they were missinging it now. But not Zechariah and Elizabeth. They remembered the old music and were stirred by it. They were upright, we're told, in the sight of God, observing the Lord's commandments blamelessly, which certainly does not mean that they were sinless, but it does mean that they were sincere and spiritually sensitive and waiting for the Lord. And while serving in the temple, a superhuman message came to Zechariah which would be the inspiration for a new song, actually a whole album of songs. But this would be the prelude and it would begin with a tune of grace. It strikes me as I read this account of what happened with Zechariah, how gracious God is. You know, we can, we can look at the writers from that period and we know that, that all of Israel was waiting for a Messiah to come. They, there was expectation that a Messiah would come. But most of them no longer had the song right. And many of them were waiting for salvation, but they thought that salvation uh, meant a deliverance from Roman rule or fairer taxes, or political autonomy, or something like that. Zechariah and Elizabeth had a better memory of the way the song went. If the description of them is at all an indicator, they were upright in the sight of God. And aside from the deep spiritual need that they shared in common with all people, they had a a pressing personal issue. I think the problem with most people today is that they forget the grandeur of God. We forget the grandeur of God. We, 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 we use this language of personal savior and somehow I think that conjures in our mind something like a personal assistant that, 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 that God is a kind of a vending machine. We make our request to him. If we get the formula right, he delivers for us. And, and we forget who he is. When I was a new Christian and was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on the campus of William Patterson University, um, within InterVarsity, circles, the name Barbara Boyd was well known. You may know that name or not. Um, Barbara Boyd was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 40 years, from 1950 to 1990. And she wrote, I want to share this thought with you. She said that, 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 that if you were to take the, the, the 96 million miles that separate the earth from the sun. You know, that's a figure that we can write and we can do the math and figure, but really hard to envision that 96 million miles. And, and, and she said that if you were to take the 96 million miles that separate the earth from the sun and you were to represent it as the thickness of a single sheet of paper, that the nearest star to us would be a distance of stacked papers 70 feet high. 
taller, I think, than this ceiling is. And the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is but a speck among billions and billions of galaxies. And Barbara Boyd said, and Hebrews 1 says that Jesus Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power. You do not ask someone like that into your life to be your assistant. Sometimes we forget the grandeur of God. But getting hold of the grandeur of God in some way, it's incredible how intimately concerned God is with each of our lives. God was on the verge of an act in the, in the, in the central miracle of the incarnation of God becoming man was on the verge of an act the likes of which the world never witnessed before and will never witness again. On the verge of a salvation of universal proportions. And the prelude to it would come through a hurting couple. What's the, what's the pain of a single, childless couple in comparison to a world affected by sin? A world ravished by war and violence and disease and misery and suffering. And we'd be tempted They'd be tempted, we would say, you know, my troubles are not really that big. My, 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 my little um, issue here that we just haven't been able to have children. And it probably should be nothing to them, but it wasn't nothing to them. And it wasn't nothing to God. And so the angel appears with this stupendous news. And, and do you see what he said? The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. The prophecy didn't have to be fulfilled in that way. No prophecy ever said that the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, would come through a couple who up to that point had been barren. It wasn't necessary for the prophecy to be fulfilled in that way. But God was concerned with Zechariah and Elizabeth intimately personally, the God who holds the whole universe together, 
who was on the verge of a salvation of universal proportions, was concerned with the situation of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and what that tells us, what it tells me, is that God is a God of lavish grace, of prodigal grace. If you'll, if you'll, if you'll pardon the unseemly analogy God seems to throw around grace like a drunken sailor throws around money. He's a God of lavish grace. And so his name is to be John. Now that wasn't a name of anyone in Zechariah's family, but it was a fitting name. You know, the name John is uh, quite a fitting name. I'm sure that everybody uh, here knows somebody by the name of John. I know several people named John. Everybody knows someone named John. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice name, but it's fairly meaningless to us other than a kind of a label. That's John over there. The Greek name, Ioannes, is no more meaningful, but Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't speak English, and they didn't speak Greek, not at home anyway. They spoke Aramaic. And Ioannes is a Hellenized version of the Hebrew Yahachanan. And that name does have meaning. It means God, Yahweh, is gracious. You know, if you want to learn the music of Christmas, the music of this great redemption that God has sent into the world, you need to gain a vision of the greatness of God. If you think of God as being so small or having such little weight that it's fitting for him to be your assistant, you will never understand. But nor will you understand it if you seek never so carefully to gain a vision of the greatness, the transcendence, the holiness of God, and you don't understand that this is a God who is near to you as well, who's numbered the hairs of your head, and who in his great plans for the redemption and the transformation of the universe is intimately concerned with you. The prelude starts with a tune of grace and it progresses into a melody of hope. You know, I can't, I can't judge the people of Israel too harshly. 400 years is a long time. It's 16 generations. Our country hasn't been in existence for 400 years. It was a long time when people were in captivity in Egypt, generation after generation for 400 years. It was a long time for the people of God to have no word from God. And many of them gave up hope. I wonder sometimes when I look at myself, if I would have been 
among them. Oh, we like to flatter ourselves. If I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. If I had been in the desert, I wouldn't have grumbled. And I wouldn't have given up hope if I were living under the Romans. I sometimes wonder if I would. And there were some people who completely gave up hope, just sold themselves out to the Romans. The tax collectors were among them. You know what's real? You know what the reality is? The Romans are the reality. There were others who, well, they didn't do so overtly, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had a form of godliness but denied its power, and they set themselves to, to working hard to make the world in which they lived a better place because they forgot the music and they gave up on the promise. Now listen, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to make the world a better place. You, you ought to try to do that. But my f- dear friends, do you recognize, do you understand that the world will never be anything other than the world. It will never be the kingdom of God, which is something quite different and comes from outside of this world. And there were many people who had given up hope. How can you tell if you've given up hope? The Pharisees would say, well, what are you talking about? Of course we haven't given up hope. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, says that that nobody hopes for something he already has. We hope for things we don't have. That is to say, hope is future-oriented. Hope is oriented toward the future. How can you tell when you've given up hope? When you think that the best days were sometime in the past when you yearn for the good old days, when you think the future looks bleak, when the music in your soul dies. But this child John was born with a task and the angel says that he's going to do three things. In verse 16 it says he'll bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. Listen, whatever it was that they were claiming, proclaiming, saying, they had strayed from the Lord. But God was sending this one to bring many of them back. And in verse 17, he says it'll turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and sandwich right between those two things. The angel says, He'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. It's unexpected. Maybe, maybe, maybe Luke got that wrong when he was recording it. Maybe Zechariah heard it wrong when he reported it. That doesn't make sense, does it? He'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Don't, don't you think he meant that he'll turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers? Isn't, isn't that where the problem is? Isn't the problem that people have become 
unfaithful to the old ways, to the ancient paths? Isn't it the next generation that needs to be brought back? Isn't that where the problem is? And isn't that what's needed today? That people need to be brought back to where we were? But, but there is no going back. There never was. Time works in one direction. And the past is the past. And to long for the past is a sure sign of a people who have given up hope. Because hope has to do with the future. But the prelude that John brings is a melody of hope. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That those who hear the message, who learn the song, will no longer pine away for the good old days, but will look forward to the future in hope and eager expectation of what the Lord will do. It was a tune of grace. that became a melody of hope, and so far, it's really been just a prelude to the prelude. But then comes the main movement of the prelude. The main movement of the prelude is sung by Zechariah himself with a newly loosened tongue. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, it begins in verse 68 and continues down to verse 79. Now, I don't, I don't know if Zechariah literally sang this or not, but he crowed it. He crowed it. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said to his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, to the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. And then he sings about his son's role in that. And he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. Isaiah breaks forth in this Holy Spirit inspired prophecy and he sings about his son's role. He'll go before the Lord heralding the way and he's going to bring a new melody to the old music. And like the prophets of old, the word of God will come through him. In fact, uh, Luke will tell us in chapter three that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the desert. And he went into the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. 
A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places plain, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John is not the main motif. He's the prelude. John himself knew that. In um, another John, the Apostle John, in his gospel, he tells us that when John was out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing, that this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, and he didn't fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they said, who are you? Then are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? That's another indication of the Christ. He said, no. And they said, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us what you, what you say about yourself. And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. John knew that he was but the prelude and his father knew that he was but the prelude too. Because at the birth of his son, he said, praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come and redeemed his people. But he's not talking about his son. For he says, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And John was not from the house of David. John was of his father, from Abijah, from Aaron, from Levi. But the prelude is important to the main motif. Because John is going to come and he's going to herald the forgiveness of sins. But the one who's promised, he's going to actually forgive them. John will bring the knowledge of salvation, but the one promised, he will bring salvation. And John will proclaim a light dawning on those living in the shadow of death, but the one promised, he is the light. And John will tell of a peace that is to come, but the promised one, he himself is our peace. I wonder if this is a song that you've learned to sing. I hope by God's grace you can and will. It's a tune of grace. You'll never understand that if you, if you never get a glimpse of how immense, how powerful, how transcendent, how holy God is. But if you can understand that, you need to be able to sing that this immense, powerful, transcendent, holy God is one who cares for me in my struggles and heartaches. Have you learned the song, can you? By God's grace, I hope you will. It's a melody of hope. You know you've got the melody wrong if you despair for the future and you pine away for the past. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the one whom this song is about. And, and bewildering as things may seem to us at times, he is working his will to bring about the salvation of his people. And your hope needs to be set on him and upon the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Have, have you learned the song, Can You, by God's grace? I hope you will. It's a song of peace. Oh, gracious, my friends, not a song of peace in the world. Have you listened to what he said? Jesus told us that there would be no peace in the world. He told us, in the world you will have tribulation. There's no promise of peace in the world. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Anybody who comes to you with some scheme uh, that's dressed in gospel garb, promising you peace in the world is lying to you. It's fine to work to make the world a better place, but never, never put your hope here. The world may be better, it may be worse, it will never be anything other than the world. Christ has come to bring you peace with God. That's what Isaiah said. He said, comfort my people, says your God. Cry to her that her warfare, that your warfare with God is finished. Your iniquity is pardoned. And if you come to understand that and learn that song, it's the only peace that you'll really want because in the end, it's the only peace that will really matter. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the main song. It's the greatest theme that God has ever written. In, in fact, in, in the whole of this book, there are no other themes. There's echoes of the melody. And what he did in the coming of Christ is his greatest work never to be bested, never to be superseded, never to be duplicated, never to be repeated. People grew tired of most of Handel's music. But if you can learn this song, it will never grow old, never go out of style and it will satisfy your soul to sing it for the rest of your life and throughout eternity. Pray with me if you would. Your Father, as we spend the rest of this month reflecting on the, on the coming of your Son, our Savior, into this world, and we consider today the prelude to this great theme. Father, may we, may we hear the tune of grace in it, the melody 
of hope. And, and see in John the prelude of the prelude of the coming of the one who's like the sun rising upon us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace with you. And we'll praise you for it. Oh, help us praise you for it. In his name, amen. Mm-hmm.